Winning in Asia is never simple or easy. It takes determination and agility. Find out how some companies get tripped up, while others make incredible profits. This is Winning in Asia. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the very first episode of Winning in Asia. My name is Michael J. Dunn, your host, and I'm really fired up to get this podcast going. Our special guests today are two very good friends of mine, Ken Wilcox and Coco Key. Ken is chairman of the Asia Society in Northern California. He is also the chairman emeritus of the Silicon Valley Bank, where he was previously the CEO. Now, beyond the lofty titles, this is what you need to know about Ken. Everyone knows Ken and Ken knows everyone on both sides of the Pacific. If you don't know Ken yet, get to know him now. Coco is co-founder of KGA, a New York-based strategic advisory and business development firm with special expertise in fintech. Now a New Yorker, Coco is born in Fujian province, home to some of China's smartest entrepreneurs. In Ken and Coco, we have two people who are very smart, very experienced, but what I like most about them is that they speak directly, straight to the point. They'll tell you what win-win really means in China. They'll also help us understand why it took Starbucks nine years before turning a profit in the People's Republic. This and more coming right up. Hello, Coco. Hello, Ken. Hi. Hello, Mike. How are you? Oh, good. Hey, hey, first off, we want to talk about China and business, but can we spend a minute just bringing ourselves up to date on the situation where you guys are? Coco, you're in New York. How are things looking on the ground in New York with regards to COVID-19 right now? New York is the epicenter of COVID-19, but things continue to improve recently. Uh, the key numbers are ticking down, for example, hospitalization, deaths, new confirmed cases, all ticking down. So good news, it's good news. Um, we definitely passed the um, apex and also on the downward side um, of the curve. So um, I start to see the light at the end of the tunnel. Good, some optimism there in the city. Yes. Now on the other end, the other coast, Ken, you're in the Bay Area in San Francisco. Yeah. Things are going pretty well. Um, mm -hmm. I do think that we've uh, crested now and things are starting to improve. We're apparently uh, eighth in the nation in terms of areas afflicted. Of course, mm. New York is number one. We have, as of today, in San Francisco, which is a city with a population of only a million, we have 23 deaths and uh, 1,400 or so cases. And if we look at the greater Bay Area, which includes not just San Francisco, but the surrounding counties, including um, the counties in Silicon Valley, we have now about 7,600 cases and about 250 deaths. So it's um, not good, not the worst. And the good news is that it seems to have crested. So it's such a contrast between New York where I don't know the cases are, are they in the hundreds of thousands, New, greater New York, New Jersey area? Oh yes, uh, um, by today, by this morning, New York has total cases over 290,000 mm. and the deaths already passed 17,000. So we are just another level. I think the difference lies in the fact that you're much more densely populated. Interestingly, mm -hmm. San Francisco is the second most densely populated city in the U.S., but nowhere near as densely populated as New York City. And that I've read is a key factor. I totally agree. Uh, the density of population 
definitely contributes to this high number. But at the same time, another factor that is the the public transportation that New Yorkers use to move from one place to another. That's another factor because most of the people in Bay Area they drive, correct? So that is another factor: the the public transportation. Right. We make very little use of public transportation in Northern California. Sadly, I think. Although in this particular case, it maybe is better. I know that really helps. So that looks like a vote in favor of more cars. <laughs> <laughs> you would say that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. At least for you know stopping the spreading of、uh, coronavirus, cars <laughs> definitely play a key role. <laughs> All right. So you guys know I'm from Detroit, and we know this、uh, podcast is about cars and business. Specifically, we want to get at what works and what doesn't work when people go to do business in this giant continent plus called Asia. And we know in particular that China can be tough. It's got so much promise, and yet the road to China and back is strewn with casualties. Companies that have went in with super high expectations and then got humbled. I mean, think of eBay or. Uber, even Jeep and, and Google. At the same time, other companies do find a way to thrive. Apple, Nike, Starbucks. So we're really interested to try to understand the different outcomes. And with Coco and Ken, we have really high-quality insiders, people who know China from top to bottom, front to back, from bargaining with vendors on the street all the way up to negotiating high-stakes deals at the penthouse level. So a few weeks ago, Coco, I asked you what advice would you give to a Western company stepping into China for the first time, and you didn't hesitate. You said, "Okay, first thing is forget everything you know, and by the way, it's probably a good idea to act more like a Chinese company." <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit more about what you meant by that? Yes.、Yeah, so what I mean is to do business in China and to succeed there, some big adjustments have to be made. I can't emphasize more that China and the U.S. are very different in many, many ways. How things get done in China, the relationship between the government and the people are so different. So, for example, one adjustment an American company has to make is to learn how to work with closely with central and local governments in China, which is. Often very challenging to American companies, and I want to use the the COVID nineteen as a real case to illustrate how different the, the two countries are. For example, in U.S., when the U.S. handles the pandemic, the federal and the local governments argue, dispute, and fight with each other, and people don't trust government. And people don't want to be told what to do by the government. But when you look at the China, the government handles the pandemic in an almost authoritarian way. Central planning, central commanding—it's very belligerent to some Americans. But this is how things get done in China, right? So it also applies to how business is run in China. But. Chinese people, at the same time, also Chinese people expect government to take charge, to protect them, and to tell them what to do. So Chinese people can never comprehend what is going on right now in the U.S. Nor do Americans. So as an American company, it has to to be fully aware of the big differences here and to learn about all the differences and decide whether it's something he likes or not, whether he can handle. Whether they can handle it. So, for example, going to your Suggestion that you know it's important to work with government at the central and local levels, including me. When I first went to China to start my first business there, 
Well, that goes totally against the grain of everything I was taught, learned about the DNA of being American is to work with. No, we don't work with government. So how does an American company start? What does that look like? Learning what they want to get done? What form does that take? I think the first thing that an American company or an American entrepreneur or executive has to do in preparation for going to China is to recognize that there is fundamentally no big difference between government and business in China. Now, I'm overstating that a little bit in order to make a point, but here we think of business as being one thing and government as another. And you could spend an entire lifetime in business in America and fundamentally have nothing to do with government. But that's the, the truth is that the uh, Chinese Communist Party, which is virtually synonymous with the Chinese government, can control anything they want to. Whether or not that's going to impact you has a lot to do with what kind of business you're involved in. There are some businesses that the Chinese uh, government or the Chinese uh, Communist Party wants to influence and others that they don't care that much about. And if you're, from my point of view, I would say unfortunate enough to be in a category that the government cares about, then you've got to figure out where do you stand in terms or where does your industry stand in its life cycle in China? Because if you're rising, so for example, a biotech, you may get really good treatment from the Chinese government because they need your knowledge and they want to uh, advance your company. If you're in a more advanced industry where you uh, really represent competition and there's not that much they can learn from you, it may work the other way around. They might use uh, regulations uh, to prevent you from growing or flourishing. And then there are industries where they don't care. You know, Starbucks has been a huge success in China, but I think that's because uh, when Starbucks went there, there was no Chinese company competing against them. So no clear lines between government and business there. They work hand in glove. They're one and the same almost. I know you, you said it's a little bit of an extreme, but it's, it's pretty accurate. That's how China works. Yeah, I've seen so many Americans go to China and say, well, if I'm just careful and follow the rules, mm -hmm. I will never have to have anything to do with government at all. That's a very naive expectation. That just represents a fundamental misunderstanding of the way China operates. Yes. Coco, have you seen this too? Yes. So one thing I, I just like to point out that in China, a lot of things are planned and decided from top down. So the, the central government or local government, they would make plans for the next five or 10 years. And then based on their plans, then all the resources will be allocated. For example, the loans from the banks or other funding will be arranged and allocated according to the plans and the regulations. Um, that's why when I said, you know, you have to learn how to work with the local government is important because you have to understand what the plan is down the road for five, 10 years, and then you understand what, what kind of support you can get from the local government or even the central government. I agree with that, Coco. I would go so far as to say that the government, to a great extent, determines outcomes. Another way of saying this is, our, you know, our bank has been quite successful in China. I mm -hmm. think we're successful to the extent that the government wants us to be successful because they have so many regulations in China and they can apply them in any way they want, arbitrarily, uh, if they wish. They can apply them in one case and not in another. And simply by pulling these regulatory levers, the government can really determine which company is going to succeed and to what extent. It's not exact. 
-hmm. But it, directionally, what I'm saying, I think, is absolutely the case. Yes, totally agree. Directionally, they would decide the fate of a company in China. Wow, that's pretty powerful. Now well, <laughs> they have uh, so many more regulations mm -hmm. than even we do. I mean, American business people complain all the time about the regulatory environment in America. But the truth is, China has even more regulations in the sense, in particular, that almost every discrete activity requires a license. So in baking, by way of example, in the U.S., you need to get fundamentally one license, a baking license, and then you can do anything a bank is able to do. In China, you can get a banking license and all that entitles you to do is open your door and say hi to people. Uh, if every single discrete banking activity requires a different license and the government can determine how many of those you get and which ones you get, the result being that the bank across the street from you may have, you know, 30 licenses and can engage in 30 activities, and you may have only six, and can only engage in six activities. Even with the same license, will a bank be given a different treatment? For example, you can do more business even with the same license from the other bank. Well, that's, that's an interesting point. And I would say in two important ways, even having the same license as a bank across the street doesn't guarantee the same outcome. And I say that, uh, first of all, because when the regulators uh, examine you, which they do on a regular and ongoing basis, they may apply their rules more stringently in one case than the other. So one bank will get punished for doing the same thing that another bank won't get punished for. And then the other thing is there is considerable evidence in my experience that banks to some degree determine which bank any given company is going to end up doing business with because the, uh, the municipal governments have agencies that follow these companies very, very closely and have a lot of influence, I think, over where they end up banking. Now, for, for our listeners, banking system in, in China, is it all state-owned enterprise? Are there any private banks? What's the ratio there? And even well, if they are private, do they still need a backer, a godfather in the government? Yeah, I would say, well, first of all, officially, out of some 2,000 plus banks, there may be one or two that are quote unquote private. The distinction between private and state owned is murky. Mm -hmm. It's fundamentally, everything is subject to the potential control by the government. Now the government doesn't control everything because not everything's important to it. But, it. but it reserves the right to intervene at any moment and apply this regulation or that license that's or, true, okay. especially in banking. If you're no. a small startup, you may be ignored totally. But if Alibaba was a small startup once, and initially for the first few years it was ignored, but now it's become almost a state-owned company in a lot of ways. Okay. So speaking of startups, you, you lived and worked in Shanghai, Ken, and really started Silicon Valley Bank's joint venture there. I think it's always interesting to learn how things go at the very beginning. You, you arrive in Shanghai, if you walk through your first days and weeks there, what, what did it look like? What did it feel like? What opportunities did you see and what, what obstacles did you encounter almost like right away? I would say that when you first arrive in China, if you're a business person and your goal is to do business, you spend a lot of time trying to equate yourself with all the strange differences and trying to find things that you can hang your hat on, generalizations that you can make. And I think the danger is that most of us, including myself, jump to conclusions too quickly. And so we may jump to a conclusion and then 
operate on the basis of that understanding. And a year later, we find out that we were wrong the whole time. Because China's like, and this is not, I'm not the first person to make this comparison, it's like a big onion, and you just peel back layer after layer after layer after layer. And in the fullness of time, you discover that you never run out of layers and that you're always learning. All right, from a Chinese perspective, Coco, you spent approximately almost half your life in China, would you say? Yes, half okay. my life in China. <laughs> you have a really unique perspective. When you are in China and you see the foreign business people start arriving, to meetings or dinners. What's the perception of foreigners from the other side? What's that look like? I think a lot of Americans, when they first um, get to China, they they see things in an American way. Mm-hmm. And so their expectation is exactly the same as what they expect in the U.S. if they start a business or expand their business to a new market. So I, I see something very, very different from Chinese, but they're not aware that there is something very different waiting for them down mm. the road. The Americans are not aware of what they're stepping into. They're not prepared. Not prepared in most of the cases. And that's that's what I see because most of the companies which end up doing well in China are those who are more willing to learn and to adapt. But most American companies, when they first come to China, they would bring lots of lawyers, accountants, and they sit down with, with Chinese counterparties and open up agreements and contracts and start from there. They don't know the difference. How does that make the Chinese side feel when the Americans show up with with lawyers and accountants? What's that feel like? Of course, they feel like, oh, they feel it's very different and a little bit odd. They can't open up. For Chinese, it, it takes different approach to get them open up to become friends. So Chinese, they like to, to become friends or to, to see whether they can trust you before they even sit down and, and negotiate the agreement. Even if they don't trust you, you sign the agreement, it doesn't count. It, doesn't, mm. it won't work. Okay, so that's where food comes in. That's right. Banquets and drinking, that actually plays a very important role in mm-hmm. bridging the differences of, of the two cultures. So it's, it's a necessary process. So in a way, realistically, what I'm hearing is that there, there is a big gap. I mean, the Chinese would feel much more comfortable going out to dinner, getting to know, can we become friends? And the, and the U.S. side is in a different environment. And they think, well, we better establish our legal rights here first and make sure the numbers are squaring. It's almost two different languages. Yes, very different. I think Americans uh, in general, including myself, uh, initially at least, put way too much emphasis on contracts and don't realize that uh, the contract isn't that important in China. It's the uh, relationship that counts. That's fascinating. So what does an American do if the contract doesn't carry the same weight? Just know that going in. I've signed the contract. You send word back to the headquarters. Contract secured. But, oh, by the way, uh, boss, it may not be totally binding. (laughs) How to explain that back at home? Well, that's the other thing. If you're reporting to a board in the U.S. or if you're not the the top person in your company and you have to report to a CEO or a management team, it's so difficult to get them to understand that distinction. It's very, very hard. So then you've got a problem on both sides. Your management team in the U.S. doesn't trust you anymore because they (laughs) think that you've gone off the reservation and that you're, you've lost your mind and you don't have a good relationship with your Chinese partner because you've been focused on the wrong thing the whole time. 
we've been focused on the contract and not on the relationship. So in a way, it's I'm hearing about adjustments and not making mistakes rather than no, it's it's really navigating something totally different from what we know here. Totally different, yeah. Let me just interject one factoid here, and that is mm-hmm. that we were so proud of ourselves for negotiating a 50-50 contract because we were, I think, the first foreign bank to enter into a joint venture with a Chinese bank whereby we had 50% ownership. In the past, it had always been 20% for the foreign bank, 80% for the Chinese and bank. And we thought we were geniuses. And mm. what I learned in the fullness of time was that it doesn't make any difference. If your partner is a state-owned company, it doesn't make any difference what percentage you own. You could own 90% and it wouldn't make any difference. The government stills in charge. D- say that again, Ken. That's huge. I mean, you own 90% and you're still not in control. Right. Because you're on Chinese soil and it's, you're subject to the rule of the, uh, of the government. That doesn't mean they'll abuse it necessarily. It mm-hmm. just means they're in charge. It's their country. And it's not quite the same here because the U.S. government isn't in charge of everything, even though they might want to be. They like to think so. Yes. Uh, Coco, your mm-hmm. company specializes in fintech. What's the story that just big picture for our listeners? There's a race in the future toward things like cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin between the United States and China. Is that race on who's winning and what's at stake here? For when it comes to crypto, uh, one thing that is slightly different from crypto is central bank digital currency. Mm-hmm. That actually is an area that the U.S. and China are racing very fast, trying to get to the uh, the final line. And China, I think, is ahead of U.S. And cryptocurrency itself is banned in China, mm. but Chinese government is very keen on uh, lead, being the leader globally in terms of blockchain and in terms of uh, creating its own central bank digital currency. Uh, that is a, a big race between the two countries, especially central bank digital currency. Would that rival the U.S. dollar then? That is the long-term intention um, by the Chinese government, because one thing that uh, a currency is changing and evolving is the importance of convenience. Mm-hmm. So not just the you know the credential it carries. For example, U.S. dollar. People trust U.S. dollar uh, more than RMB right now. But more and more people also start to uh, pay attention to how convenient the currency would be in their daily life. So for cross-border transaction or for just domestic transaction. So China realizes that that is something that may give them a leap, an edge. Mm -hmm. And also the Chinese government feels the threats from Libra, which Facebook is creating. Uh, it, It would be a stable coin or a kind of digital currency that, Facebook will be using throughout its whole e-commerce network. And that will become a threat to Chinese currency because Facebook has so more than a billion uh, users throughout the whole world. Hmm. So if people start to use Libra, that means dollars position as the global currency is further enhanced and Hmm. may, may stop China from its effort of globalizing RMB. That's why China is is trying so hard to push out the central bank digital currency after they learn that Libra is 
pushing out its own uh, digital currency. It seems here's another illustration of how U.S. and China are going head to head, competing on yet another front. Many say we're at the lowest point in U.S.-China relations in in 40 years. Ken, from here, do you think things will get better, stay the same, get worse? We're in new territory.、Um, what's it look like? Oh my gosh! You know, telling the future. I'm better at telling the past than the future. <laughs> Aren't we all? But, yeah. I don't envision that the relationship between the U.S. and China is going to get better quickly. I think that this、uh, pandemic is actually helping. But I think the the main reason the relationship isn't getting better is our respective leaders. Meaning,、uh, neither of them are、uh, seem particularly interested in having a better relationship. If I look at、uh, Xi Jinping, he seems to do as many things as he possibly can to antagonize the American government. And on the other side, Trump seems to do as much as he possibly can to antagonize the Chinese government. So I think with these two leaders in place, it's going to be very, very difficult for us to improve our relationship. I'm curious what Coco thinks about that, though. I have never been so pessimistic about U.S.-China relations.、Uh, not just from on the government's、uh, level, the mess of both countries are also getting、uh, hostile and、uh, suspicious of each other. And in China, for example, the nationalism is increasing, and the anti-U.S. sentiment is is growing. So that is something that concerns me. That means that the sentiment of hostile sentiment and also mutual suspicion and all the confrontational、uh, rhetoric spread throughout the government and the people. A concerning situation. Seems like no way out. Not in the near future. <laughs> Not in the near future. So we talked about misreading the territory, not understanding the role of government at, at all levels. I'd love to hear from you guys about other mistakes, major mess-ups that American or other Western business executives make when they go to the People's Republic to do business. Let me jump in first. I think one of the common mistakes or scenario that we see is American companies. They go to China with very high expectation, and they are not there ready and prepared for a long haul. So after one or two years, they say, "Okay, it's not working. Let's just pull out," or、mm. they start to question. Their original vision or plans or strategy. So, unfortunately, there's no shortcut in in China. You just have to be there, preparing for a long haul, and be patient and keep trying, keep trying. So the Americans are a little bit impatient. Want some results? Yes, result driven. Well, that's exactly right. I think, and if you're in partnership with a state-owned or partially state-owned or heavily state-controlled company,、uh, you've got to realize that that you may have different goals than the goals that they have, and they may be meeting your goals while you're not meeting yours. And the biggest misunderstanding, I think, is that particularly those that are heavily influenced by the state are not as interested in ROE as they are. Are in a strategic advantage over time, and you may be under heavy pressure from your board or your management team back in the U.S. to achieve positive quarterly results as quickly as is possible. 
And in some cases, positive quarterly results are almost irrelevant to many of the Chinese companies that are um, heavily influenced or owned by the state. So what to do in that situation? You want to hold your ground as a representative of your company, your corporation. At the same time, you want to be flexible enough to go with the flow in China. That sounds like some hard work. Well, it fits into the category that Chinese like to refer to is as um, one bed, two dreams. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, I, I think that those are sometimes almost impossible to resolve. And also, I, I think another thing that the people who are sent to China to manage China project has to communicate with the board, with shareholders, and manage their expectation. You know, look at Starbucks, for example. It mm-hmm. took them nine years to break even. So they have, have been losing money for nine years. And can you imagine how much pressure an objection coming from all the shareholders for nine years. But I think the management, um, the CEO, did a very good job of, of communicating and telling the story of China in a way that was convincing enough and was you know, able to win enough time to realize what they try to do in China. Nine years. I had no idea that yes. it took that nine long years. for Starbucks to make money. Just quickly, Coco, what explains Starbucks' phenomenal success there besides patience? Did they tap into something that China didn't already have? Why is Starbucks done so well there, in your view? In the beginning, it definitely the prestige that Starbucks gives to consumers is, is it definitely plays a very key role. So in China, when you go to Starbucks, it's not about drinking coffee. It's about your prestige. You are different from mm-hmm. other consumers. And even some people, they say, when you go to Starbucks in China, you have to carry The Economist or an American mm-hmm. magazine <laughs> to be there and sit there to show how different you are from your peers. So it, it, it definitely it gives some uh, Chinese uh, something very different and unique. That's a big point of leverage for Starbucks or for any company to have something that's hard to duplicate, offers mm-hmm. prestige, exclusivity, not easy to duplicate as we saw with Luckin. One of the things that we found very interesting and we found it out early on was that um, American customers, technology companies in the U.S., who are our customers, really value service. They want somebody who understands their company and can accompany them in their journey. Chinese technology companies really didn't value that at all. They may say they value it, but they certainly weren't willing to pay for it. What they were interested in was the cheapest. We had to be cheaper than anybody else, any other alternative. And all the service that we would heap on, they either didn't appreciate it at all, or if they did, they didn't appreciate it enough that they would be willing to pay for it. It's a a totally different motivation. And if you study companies that have really tripped over themselves in China, like Cisco, by way of example, you can see so many examples of Cisco assuming, or Mm -hmm. the American company in general, assuming that the Chinese market works the same way. And then when they find out that it works differently, not being willing to make the adjustment. Right. I've heard that story so many times over where across industries, it's, I understand the Chinese are asking for price, 
now, but they'll quickly evolve and understand that they should pay a premium for services. But in reality, that doesn't really happen. It's sort of an an illusion like, oh, they're not there yet, but they're getting there quickly. Maybe not. Well, at the risk of oversimplifying, if you want to be successful in China, you have to become Chinese. Mm -hmm. And that means so many different things, but it means thinking like somebody who's Chinese and behaving like somebody who's Chinese. If you could turn into somebody who's Chinese, it would enhance the probability of success. All right. <laughs> I think that's exactly what, <laughs> that's a very what, good point. what you said earlier, Coco, right? You have to act like a Chinese company. Think like a Chinese company. Exactly. And forget about whatever you know about U.S. markets, but just with a very open mind to get into China market in order to succeed. Okay. We, we talked about contracts and they're more like mile markers than end games. But nonetheless, at some point, partners or business people sit down at a negotiating table to hammer things out. And I can tell you that many of our clients, before they go into a negotiation, are absolutely terrified to sit across the table from the Chinese because, well, the Chinese have a reputation for being the toughest negotiators in the world. Why is that, Coco? In your view, what is the Chinese approach to negotiation and what makes them so tough? Okay, so this is how I see it. You both probably are familiar with one expression, you die, I live. Mm -hmm. So the concept of (laughs) win-win is novel. It's novel to to most Chinese. Uh So when you sit down on negotiation table with Chinese, all Chinese see just enemies in front of them. And the only thing they think about is how to defeat the enemy and win the battle. Say the expression in Chinese again, (laughs) because it's golden. Everyone should know this. You You die. I, uh-huh. live. I live. I live. But in the West, which I learned uh, recently when I went to business school, there's a concept of win-win. This concept is, is just novel to most Chinese, and they're still learning about, about it. I'm sure it would take a while for them to fully understand why it is important to create, for example, a bigger pie so that all the interest groups can benefit versus one party gains at the expense of the rest. Mm-hmm. So that is something that I am very aware of, you know, it's big difference in terms of mentality when you negotiate and negotiate with a potential partner. I'm so happy to hear you say that because I was afraid that that you and I were going to come to blows here. But the (laughs) truth is, I couldn't agree with you more. I think many uh, uh, people in China have caught on to our getting to yes concept or the, 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 this romantic notion that we have that everybody can go away happy. Mm-hmm. And they, they, they'll say, they'll start the negotiation by saying, let's try for win-win. We believe in win-win. <laughs> and you, you know that you're having your leg pulled when somebody says that to you because, you know, win-win in China means they win two times. <laughs> <laughs> it just occurred to me that the Chinese get another advantage here because they can say, across the negotiating table, this is all about win-win, whereas the Westerner can't sit down and say, you die, I live. Right. (laughs) Okay. Um, Everyone's looking for tips or advice from your own personal experience, something that you learned along the way that you would tell your friend or family member, hey, if you really want to thrive in China, do this or, or, or don't do that. What tips would you guys give? I would say, you know, willing to learn and to adapt, including trying to learn to speak some Chinese would definitely help. Like Mike or Ken, you can tell if you speak 
a few words of Chinese, Chinese space will will, will light up.、Hmm. So that's my tip. Okay, Ken. My advice would be think about what、uh, Teddy Roosevelt said:、uh, speak softly and carry a big stick. So what I mean by that is speak softly means always be polite, never yell, never get angry, never show. Your emotions, because you look foolish in the eyes of many Chinese.、Um, but carry a big stick, and by that I don't mean to hit people. I mean make sure you have leverage, meaning you've got something they want. And if you don't have something they want, go home and forget it. Okay, can I pick up on what you just said a moment ago? Because I I know from my own personal experience, sometimes you feel as though there's game playing on the other side, and the temptation is to call it out right then and there, as you would in America. There's obfuscation. There's promises not kept. There's delays. Bureaucratic, and the temptation to say, "Hey, what the hell is going on here?" But I'm hearing you say, maybe just hold your tongue, bide your time, stay cool. You know that they know that you know that they know, and that's enough. If you're going to call somebody out, then try to make sure that you two are the only people in the room. Okay. Because if you call them out in front of others, you're really making a huge mistake. Yeah, it all boils down to saving Chinese face,、uh, not confronting them in public. And do the Chinese feel the same way about saving foreigners' face, or is it? We don't have face, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> in general, when when doing business in China, I barely see Chinese confront. Or、uh, call out Americans. They always keep a very polite front, but maybe they would they would say something or do something when you are not around. Yeah, I think that's right. I'm amazed, Coco, at the extent to which we have similar views. I know. So we didn't argue enough today. <laughs> <laughs> it's like a, an amazing adventure to go to China. It really is energizing, fascinating, unpredictable, spontaneous, frustrating—all those things together. Ken Wilcox, Coco Key, thank you for joining us today on Winning in Asia. I really enjoyed the conversation, and I hope we can do this again soon. Thank, thank you for you. having me. All right, guys. Thanks so much. Ken Wilcox has brought enormous energy and purpose to the Asia Society since becoming chairman two years ago. I highly recommend that you join Asia Society Northern California today. Coco Key, well, you want Coco on your side of the table anytime you're negotiating a deal in the People's Republic. Thank you, Ken. Thank you, Coco, for joining me today. This has been terrific. Let's do this again very soon. What is that key Chinese phrase we'd like to take away from this conversation today? No doubt about it. It's ni si wo ho. You die, I live. Keep that in mind next time you sit down at the negotiating table in China, because at least some of the people in the room will be thinking in that way. This is winning in Asia. Thanks for listening to Winning in Asia. Please let us know what you think by leaving us a review and a rating. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend. For more information or to connect with Michael Dunn, visit zozogo.com.